Well, welcome all to this call in relation to the autumn statement that took place yesterday afternoon. I'm joined by my colleagues, Alex Dawson, our UK country director with a background as a conservative special advisor in the Home Office and number 10, and Matt Bevington, our political due diligence director, whose background is more Labour Party oriented. So yesterday we had the autumn statement and that was pushed back from the original Halloween delivery date, which was obviously quite a questionable political choice for for an event of this nature. And there are ultimately many factoids uh, that are being circulated in relation to it, such as the fact that we've gone from Quasi Quartang's budget of nearly 30 billion of tax cuts to Hunt's budget, uh, which obviously involves 30 billion of tax rises in the space of just a few weeks, or that household real disposable income will fall by over 7% over the next two years, the biggest drop uh, since records began in the 1950s, or that the overall tax rate uh, the, the the ultimate amount that's collected by the government will be higher as a percentage of GDP than at any time since World War II. But on this call, we want to unpack what was unveiled uh, and ultimately explain it uh, in a way that's relevant to you, all of whom have, have dialed in today. And by the way, to all of those who've dialed in, uh, please feel free to ask questions of us throughout, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to either answer them uh, throughout the call or get to some at the end. So to start, Alex, can you briefly unpack the composition of the 25 billion in tax increases? You know, we had 55 billion in terms of spending cuts uh, and tax increases, and, and, and of that 55 billion, 25 percent, uh, 25 billion was was tax increase. Can you just unpack the composition of it? Yeah, of course. So look, um, a large chunk is the uh, extending and increasing the windfall tax on energy providers, uh, including um, uh, putting in place an electricity generator levy. Uh, Then there is also a huge amount of a kind of a favourite sort of treasury uh, way of increasing tax, which is called fiscal drag, which has basically been about holding the thresholds uh, for through until 2028 for all sorts of different types of taxation. So we're looking at income tax, uh, NICs, inheritance tax, um, uh, employer NICs, uh, capital gains tax, um, actually where the exempt amount is coming down ever so slightly, uh, again, kind of causing a little bit of a... Um, causing a little bit of trouble for, for, for Jeremy Hunt on the back benches. Uh, and, and that is where the big, big chunk of uh, tax increases are coming from. Also notable that the uh, implementing the um, uh, pillar two of the OECD uh, uh, agreement um, will also raise a fair chunk of tax in the coming years. And ultimately, obviously, um, that is on top of uh, scrapping the cut from uh, 25 down back down to 19, which was the Trustonomics plan. Uh, that is obviously still in place. Uh, the one kind of bright light, uh, arguably speaking, is that uh, national insurance hasn't been put back up. Um, uh, and the scrapping of the health and social care levy uh, hasn't been reversed. But, you know, obviously at the end of it, uh, people are going to be um, poorer because of these tax rises you know, just just through a different means. And obviously one thing that wasn't in the, the Green Book released by Treasury and, and even announced by Hunt uh, in his in his oral statement was 
the fuel duty is ultimately going to be going up very substantially because it's sort of permanently baked into the system that it goes up uh, and, and ultimately chances have to decide each time whether or not well, to yeah. forego the increase. But that's a huge increase, right? Well, I mean, well, potentially. I mean, but Hunt today on the media round said that uh, uh, fuel duty wouldn't be going up by that amount. Um, the OBR scores it uh, because it is the, uh, the, the policy of the government uh, until it is not the policy of the government, which happens at every single fiscal event. Um, you know, the last 12 years of Conservative government have permanently featured an increase in fuel duty is coming in the next six months uh, and it never does arrive. I would be surprised if uh, that that happens so we could see uh, in the next a few budget, months' time. Ultimately, you know, I think, I think in the next budget, it, it will cost five billion quid, but it will be postponed again. Yes, I imagine. Otherwise, uh, Robert Halvin will be very displeased. <laughs> yes. And and, and we also saw, you know, so there's 55 billion overall, but but 30 billion of that is is departmental spending cuts. Uh, and obviously that's a mixture of revenue funding, but also capital funding. How has the Chancellor spread that pain? Uh, well, I mean, some of it is about, um, I mean, effectively, it's it, it's not giving any extra money really to cope with inflation. You know, there's there are there are bits here and there. It's mostly about kind of cash freezing, um, uh, and and obviously as well, kind of the uh, some of it is baking in the um, the money that uh, the government has notionally gained by reducing the. Uh, amounts that it's going to spend on the energy price guarantee again another reversal from the uh from the trust administration um but but realistically it's about just holding cash settlements and allowing them to be eaten up by inflation as well uh in in order to kind of make those savings but what's interesting is that uh, you know, in contrast to the Osbornomics kind of approach, George Osborne in uh, the early part of the last decade, where he uh, and David Cameron tried to reduce the deficit by a mix of 80% uh, spending cuts and 20% spending rises. This is much more about um, uh, 45, 55 in favour of spending, uh, in favour of uh, tax rises. So just that overall balance is slightly different. And if you're looking at kind of what is doing the heavy lifting, uh, it is the tax rises. So it's sort of slowly turning into Scandinavian country. Uh, well, I mean, it depends on your definition of what a Scandinavian country is like. But, but with respect to the, the politics in terms of un- unpacking uh, the budget still, especially in relation to the Conservative Parliamentary Party, Alex, and particularly given their appetite for defenestrating their leaders of late, what are the risks now for the government? You know, who's going to be inveighing against the budget that we saw, the autumn say we saw yesterday? You know, have Hunt and Sunak sufficiently balanced the factions within the Conservative Parliamentary Party or not? Well, look, I mean, uh, the, the Conservative Party, Parliamentary Party is not a happy family, um, but we knew that before yesterday. Uh, and we knew that people would tend to kind of uh, use the autumn statement to kind of pursue, you know, their uh, their displeasure at certain policies that the government was doing. So, for instance, you had Jacob Rees-Mogg, until very recently the business secretary, a big supporter of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, coming out yesterday criticising the OBR, criticising the tax rises. Uh, and this issue of tax rises is going to be a very kind of difficult one for, for Hunt and Sunak to deal with. Um, however, I mean, there is 
to coin a kind of a phrase or to bring back a sort of a Thatcherite phrase, there is no alternative is the argument from Sunak and uh, Hunt. Uh, they would say that there is no uh, there is no way that uh, extra spending cuts are going to be able to be delivered. Uh, therefore, you know, over above what they've announced uh, and that fundamentally tax rises are going to have to be the way to deal with it. I would also say that just on a pure sort of um, uh, professional level kind of, the operation is credited by a fair number of Conservative MPs as being a better, more impressive operation than was the case with the List Trust and Kwasi Kwarteng, which I think was uh, a small contributing factor to uh, the economic chaos that we saw after the uh, the growth plan or the mini budget um, delivered by Kwasi Kwarteng about two months ago, uh, where actually a load of these things just hadn't been road tested. It was an immediate kind of like hit with some aspects of the Tory party, but fairly quickly it sort of soured after that. Uh, you know, at the very least, Hunt and Sunak can't be accused of not... Um, uh, under promising and over delivering. Well, so, so being regarded as more favorable than 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 trust and quasi, that is very high praise. <laughs> well, but Matt, I, I just I just want to turn to, to you now in terms of still unpacking the politics of the autumn statement, particularly with respect to the Labour Party and its perspective. Do you think that they the Labour Party will feel politically imbued and advantaged by yesterday's statement? And what if they were to be in office, would they have done differently, uh, materially differently uh, yesterday? Well, I think generally, I don't think they will feel advantaged by the inheritance that, that they would likely get if they were about to enter government. The situation has obviously deteriorated significantly in recent months. In terms of what they would do differently, I mean, Rachel Reeves set out a bunch of tax rises that she would have gone ahead with that the government didn't. So abolishing non-DOM status might get you three billion, removing carried interest benefits, less than a billion. Uh, getting rid of VAT on school, VAT tax breaks on school fees, another couple of billion. So lots of these smaller things at the margins they might do. She also criticised um, the freezing of tax thresholds. But again, it's hard to see how Labour wouldn't be forced to do the same thing. Perhaps a Labour government might decide to freeze higher thresholds and let lower ones rise with inflation, or at least somewhere close to them. So those are the kinds of choices they might make. But I think ultimately, the big picture is that they would be dealing with a very constrained environment in much the same way as the government is. There would just be different Tax and, tax and spend choices at the margin. The interesting thing, I think, was what they didn't dispute, which was the new fiscal rules and the softened fiscal rules that, um, that the Chancellor set out. So having debt falling and borrowing below 3% of GDP within five years. Now, the government is only just achieving that, as I think Alex said. But the, the challenge for Labour is they've made quite big commitments on spending in terms of green investment, this $28 billion a year pledge. And how do they achieve that while also sticking to these new rules? Now, I think there are a few options that they have. So one is one of what I've just set out, which is slightly different tax and spend choices, but that's mostly piecemeal and probably doesn't get them where, where they need to be to get, have the room to, to make that investment. Um, another option is they soften these debt and borrowing rules. So it wouldn't be the first time that a new chancellor came in and decided to kick the can a bit further down the road. But there's obviously a question now about market sentiment and would would that be credible? Uh, you know, At some point, the UK is going to have to get a grip of this situation and could could a Labour government uh, be able to keep keep pushing this down the road? It's unclear. And then probably thirdly, the 28 billion itself becomes an ambition and they have to scale that back. Uh, and I think that's probably where they're going to have to end up because the situation they're likely to, to inherit is worse than, than when they actually set out that policy originally. But I think just politically, though, though, Matt, what are the lines of the party? Because ultimately, we've seen an increase in the amount that energy companies are going to be 
tax. You know, that was one of their sort of main features of, of what they were criticizing the government in relation to. Obviously, that, that has now happened. The government has increased the amount that energy companies are going to be paying in tax. Now, actually, about 75% uh, overall for the oil and gas operators on the UK continental shelf. So, so, so what, what are their attack lines going to be now? What's their focus politically going to be? Well, I think as Alex was setting out in terms of the balance of, of spending cuts and tax rises, uh, at the very least, I think Labour will probably flip around that balance so it's more weighted towards tax rises than spending cuts. I think the argument they're going to try and prosecute is that you can't cut your way out of growth and basically, you know, point to the last last decade or so and say, well, we tried austerity, didn't really help growth. We tried slash and burn free market approach that didn't really work either. So we need to try something else, and the, and the something else will be higher taxes on certain groups, higher income groups. Um, companies that have benefited from both the pandemic probably and also the, the energy crisis. Um, and those are the people who should bear the burden. So allowing the government to invest for growth in, in the medium term, that's probably the argument they would make. I would say on, on the windfall taxes, they would also probably have gone further than the government. They've talked about getting rid of the investment incentives. Uh, you know, uh, They wouldn't describe them as that, but that's, that's the kind of thing they would want to do and, and probably extend it to a few other companies as well. So there's a bit more leeway at the margin for them politically to, to probably impose a few more tax rises, but also that then comes back to the question of what is Labour's growth strategy? Um, and it's it's kind of not clear beyond a bit more public investment, having an industrial strategy, having a bit more stability. They still haven't really answered the question, well, what is actually causing low growth and what what is the policy solution to to address it? They've got a very an increasing kind of pledge card of, of policies, but they're all quite sporadic and, and don't really feed into it. A sense that they that you you feel they have a clear analysis of what is actually causing low growth and what what is needed to correct it. So they'll be inheriting a very difficult situation. And I think at the margin they will do things differently. Um, but but I think yeah, it's, it's broadly flipping the balance probably to more towards tax rises and away from spending cuts. So now is quite an opposite time to engage with the Labour Party on fleshing out their industrial policy. Yeah, I think so. And there are a couple of vehicles to do that. So obviously, they're committed to setting up an industrial strategy council and actually legislating for it. So giving it a bit more uh, long-term stability and basis. Uh, what's not clear is, A, who will be on that council, what, what the council will be encouraged to do. There's obviously an industrial strategy, which will be the basis for it, but these things can take on a life of their own. So being heavily involved in, in the design of that will be one thing. Um, there's, there's, there's other vehicles like the NHS 10-year plan they've talked about. So where streeting is working on this, uh, if, you know, getting involved early in Labour's thinking around that will be important because their focus to date has really been on in increasing the size of the domestic workforce and investing in training, things that will take a long time to come to fruition. But I think uh, kind of businesses that have smart ideas about how DHS can be more effective, because one thing that Labour have also said is we can't just keep throwing money at the problem. There has to be reform. There has to be a different way of operating that makes it more efficient. So businesses partnering in that respect, will will I think get a decent reception, and then just the broader the broader mood music around labourers that they want to partner with business more. What I would say is, uh, we haven't really seen that come to fruition much yet in policy terms. The big policies they've announced have mostly been uh, public sector focused, public investment focused. So I think what if and when we see them talking a bit more about regulatory reform, I think that will be a sign that they're beginning to get a bit more serious about their pro business agenda. I want to get a bit more into the application of, of this autumn statement. You know, what does it mean for various sectors on the call? And I, I want to start with you, Alex, particularly on this issue. And I know you referenced it before, but 
the issue of capital funding. Now, it's been protected in cash terms, uh, but ultimately, as you alluded to, it will be cut uh, because it's not being insulated from the very high levels of inflation. Uh, but what does this mean for infrastructure spending? A few projects got name-checked, high-speed two, integrated rail plan, etc. But many didn't, such as the multi-tens of billion pound road investment strategy or the rail enhancements pi- pipeline, etc. You know, there are many areas of capital expenditure that have not been insulated uh, by this autumn statement. And so they will be cut. What does this mean? Is it all going to be pushed to the right of the Treasury spreadsheets? Uh, I mean, short answer is yes, a lot will get pushed to the right. So shortly before the budget, you've got to remember that all budgets and fiscal statements are tactical as well as strategic. Before the budget, um, lots of people were saying, well, the obvious way of finding a load of savings without it being really brutal is to, uh, A, look at capital spending um, and, and effectively try and kind of cut that and get rid of some of that meet. Um, now, uh, the Chancellor, the Prime Minister all want to be pro-growth. They say that ultimately, uh, increasing capital spending is good for growth. Uh, therefore, what we will do, our tactical shtick, is that we will protect it at cash levels. Um, now, what that doesn't reveal, therefore, you can say that you know we're not cutting it, we are pro-growth. Um, uh, what that doesn't um, allude to, though, is that uh, firstly, the schemes that have been promised are probably unfundable from the current set of kind of cash allocations that we have when it comes to capital spending. I mean, part of the reason that Rishi Sunak fell out with Boris Johnson, uh, you know, about this time last year, was that Boris Johnson was going around saying, yeah, we'll fund, you know, this extension to a roadway here and that bus stop there, and we'll fund all of it. And frankly, there just wasn't money in the budgets to do that. Um, So to a certain extent, this is just sort of uh, restating the obvious, which is that it's not the schemes that are getting funded. There is just a certain amount of capital to go towards funding certain schemes. Now, those schemes that you mentioned, they talked about core HS2. So that basically means that we're going to try and avoid some of the uh, some of the extra bits of HS2 that people have been asking for, and where, frankly, the government has been in the past. Um, similarly, kind of the integrated rail plan, I mean, it was criticised uh, when it was published for, for, for not being as ambitious as people wanted it to be and thought it would be. And obviously, most of these schemes won't die they won't just be scrapped entirely but they'll be pushed off to the right on the scorecard uh and you know and it's quite possible we'll see neither hair nor hair about them uh ever again uh now another thing that we should be paying attention to is it does seem that the new kind of fiscal rule um seems to uh you know, omit the difference between what capital and current spending is so the idea of three percent of borrowing by you know over the five-year period you know, that basically provides room post um, uh, kind of uh, post comprehensive spending review period uh, does provide room for maybe a little bit of capital to current switching um, in future. And I think it is basically a sign of a government sort of showing that it will find ways to, uh, you know, trim their sales uh, as and when they can. Now, obviously, and I just want to pick this up, um, We've been talking about this as a kind of a whole five-year package. And I think what Matt alluded to is that there is a difference between where we are pre-2024 general election or potential 2024 general election and post-2024 general election. And if you look at kind of the actual sort of small amounts, the actual kind of scorecarding, 
you know, actually it's relatively little in the way of um, consolidation uh, this year and next, and it really ramps up after 2024. Now that basically provides both a challenge to labour, it's like, this is the gift for you. You work out how you deal with this, but also it provides a little bit of room. I mean, a tiny war chest for the government uh, pre-election, but it also provides a little bit of room for the idea that something may turn up. So you might have, for instance, energy prices come down, inflation's a bit better than expected, maybe growth just sort of uh, is a bit better than expected. And then that gives the government a bit more leeway, um, both in actual terms, but also political terms, to work out where the money should go, you know, what should be the election pitch, um, while still basically being able to have an argument about fiscal responsibility, where they'll always sort of back themselves against the Labour Party. Um but yeah, so that I think that's kind of how we should be thinking about capital spending and some of these choices uh, around the timing of the next election and around the timing of this scorecard. Yeah, I think that point you're making about the potential for some fiscal space to emerge over the next two years is vital in terms of thinking about election dynamics and what will or won't be in the manifesto of Conservative Party, but also the Labour Party, if they're going to maintain this sort of fiscal uh, rectitude, uh, responsibility first uh, approach. Now, now, Matt, I want to turn to you because you have an interest uh, slightly in, in R&D uh, spending, which is revenue rather than capital in, in terms of government speak. Do we think sectors, and I know many are, are on this call, should be concerned that officials will start to shuffle uh, some of their spending envelopes around in this area, you know, such as the auto transformation fund or the life sciences manufacturing fund and other funds, because Sunak has always been a, an advocate of co-investment, you know, unlocking investment in the economy uh, through uh, co-investment from government. Is that going to be insulated? Obviously, it's not protected in terms of uh, real terms uh, spending, but it, but it is in cash terms. Is it is it now the case that these pots of money are just too small to really have any impact on growth? Well, I think you've made the basic point, which is that the real terms impact of these is now much diminished. And I think it's an, it's interesting that at this point in time, when the US, for instance, is, has brought forward its Inflation Reduction Act, massive uh, kind of subsidies and investments for electric vehicles, among other sectors. Yeah. The support that the UK government is, is providing is diminishing in, in real value. So there's a question about UK competitiveness internationally, not just the kind of support we could provide for, for domestic industries. Now, I think there was a gap in the in the statement in terms of what is the broader growth plan. I mean, there is there was a sense that, you know, we, we just have to do the hard stuff and we'll think about growth later almost. You know, holding capital spending overall still in cash terms was was something, I suppose, but Overall, you didn't get a sense that the government itself had a had a kind of uh, a theory about how you stimulate growth beyond doing some some rather small things at the edges. So we basically now have two parties that that are doing very similar things. I think in terms of the growth agenda, which is playing around with kind of similar mechanisms and instruments, maybe sort of tinkering them either way up or down. But actually, we, we are kind of lacking a, a as probably we were we were before the pandemic a sense of how do you actually get the economy moving. And no one has really come come with an answer to that. And I don't think the government did yesterday. I don't think Labour have got there yet either. But yeah, uh, the R&D piece of this is obviously crucial. Um, we've got lots of targets, but actually getting there in practice is, is a very different matter. I suppose some might say that we've we've flipped back into Treasury orthodoxy. Um, but but Alex, I, I want to come to you on, on, on 
non-expenditure related issues that we saw in the autumn statement, particularly regulatory reform and a number of, of growth areas were, were name checked by the Chancellor. And he particularly leaned into reforms uh, to, to the financial services industry, um, referencing potentially you know, a second big bang. Uh, but do we think there are any other sectors that might materially benefit, particularly given that ultimately parliamentary time is quite lacking? You know, we're, we're talking about potentially a, an elongated third session, the one we're in, and maybe the fourth session would be quite truncated as a result and, and really not allow for much in terms of legislative activity. Well, so, I mean, firstly, I, I think, you know, again, it's worth thinking about the tactics and the strategy of this from a kind of a treasury point of view. So, um, uh, tactically, they need to show that there is a sort of a Brexit dividend. They need to talk about Brexit in the speech. They also need to actually, as a, as a matter of industrial strategy, um, work out what the best approach is to regulation and changes in sort of standards, particularly kind of post-Brexit. Um, so, you know, Hunt stands up and says, we will decide and announce changes to EU regulations of five growth industries, digital technology, life sciences, green industries, financial services, and advanced manufacturing. Now, in definitely in two of these areas, financial services and digital technology, you already have an existing corpus of work of uh, basically post-Brexit regulation via the data reform bill with regards to digital technology and via the financial services and markets bills, uh, markets bill for, for financial services. Um, adding in green industries, uh, life sciences, advanced manufacturing, there are a series of non-legislative kind of goals that you can achieve via that, um, uh, you know, in terms of kind of post-Brexit reform. And clearly a lot of this is about kind of sharpening and improving the government's own approaches to uh, to regulation, how it does its business. Um, you know, there are a number of things that you can think of. What I think it points to, though, tactically as well, is them trying to get off the hook uh, that they're currently on with regards to the retained EU law bill, which is currently in front of Parliament, which proposes a breakneck set of uh, reviews of um, uh, of of kind of the retained EU kind of key effectively in UK law, but where they worry that frankly you're going to miss the wood for the trees, uh, and actually there's going to be a whole big process of turning EU law into UK kind of um, UK policy, but without actually much scope for getting that regulation right and doing it effectively. So I think this is a bit of about a kind of a slow shift onto a more strategic point of view when it comes to post-Brexit regulation. And clearly, I think it's going to be an area that is going to be a sort of a, an important topic uh, of politics for the next few years, because if, you've, if you can't cut taxes and you can't raise spending uh, because growth is shoddy, the only route that you really have to take if you want to change that growth picture is potentially regulatory reform, uh, which is obviously kind of focused on these kind of very high value areas. But, you know, it's also going to be an interesting place in terms of regulatory reform, uh, what changes we see to the migration framework and the structures around that over the course of the coming years. And I think that's something that um, corporates and investors should be paying attention to, uh, you know, as we as we think about the next stages. I was going to ask about this, but coincidentally, we've literally just had a question come in on precisely this issue, and it relates to the retained EU law 
bill uh, that will ultimately become an act relatively soon. Uh, and I think I, I hear from people in government that ultimately it's going to require a lot of resourcing, uh, particularly in Bayes, in DEFRA, in the departments that have got a lot of retained EU law to go through and decide whether to, to junk it or retain it or amend it. Uh, Etc. Uh, by the end of of next year, you know that is actually quite a tall order, requiring you know, hundreds of officials. And I, I know that the the cuts to officials will no longer uh, be taking place. But nonetheless, I think Whitehall has been deluged by you know crisis after crisis, you know, COVID, EU exit, etc. Do we think that all of that's going to be pushed back in terms of retained EU law? Do you think the ambition is going to be quite small, a result of uh, as a result of the resourcing issue? I, 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 I mean, I think they're, they're, you know, uh, you know, I think they're going to try and find ways to make sure that the resource that there is there is used to, to the most effective way possible, and that probably doesn't involve looking at kind of various aspects of arcanery um, uh, within the system. Now, the retained EU law bill came about as the bidding war for the right of the leadership election in the summer um, that Sunak and Truss engaged in. I, I think. Uh, I think effectively Sunak's administration will try and find a way of um, not having to undertake all of this work because they will want to focus it, as the Chancellor said in his speech yesterday, on the areas where uh, doing really quality, savvy re-regulation or deregulation or different regulation or divergence of regulation is going to make the most material difference to the UK's kind of economic output, which is in those areas that he mentioned, rather than sort of, uh, you know, kind of how you conduct sort of habitat surveys, for instance. And and going to a completely different topic, but but Matt, I wanted to, to put this to you because I think it's been somewhat discounted in terms of an issue that that's focused on and i'm specifically referring to the possibility of of widespread industrial action over the coming months both in the public and private sector given the actual the impact from the autumn statement in part but the the real terms reduction in wages that we're going to see over the next two years in particular. And I know there have been, I think, 33 mooted strikes and eight actual ones that have been penciled in already taken place in aviation ground staff, nurses, rail staff, bus staff, border force staff, packaging company staff, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there are ballots for junior doctors, ambulance staff, teachers, oil and gas workers. You know, I guess two questions one is, you know, should people be ordering their Christmas presents early? And the second is, you know, to what extent do we think that maybe winter is going to be very difficult uh, for the country and maybe even reflective of, of the winter of discontent? Is this discounted in our politics right now? Is this a material risk? Well, so the first question, I think people should, yes, order early. Don't be like me. Don't disappoint your your friends and family. Um, on the second question, I think what the forecast said to me yesterday was higher inflation for a longer period resulting in two very difficult years. So you know, this is not just an issue for the next few months. It's also an issue for pay, pay negotiations next year as well. And I imagine what unions will want to do is, is perhaps pull these two things together so you get multi-year settlements. Um, so I think this has only got worse. And actually, when you look at the forecast of the Bank of England uh, on inflation, they have persistently underestimated both the, the the height of the peak, but also the length of of time that it's likely to last for. So 
you know, I, I think I think this is basically a permanent feature of, of our politics until the next election and may even run into the next election as, as something both parties need to have a clear position on. Well, thank you very much uh, to, to both of you. Uh, and thank you to all of those who dialed in today. That's all we've got time for on the autumn statement. Uh, we sent around a, a comprehensive overview of, of the autumn statement in, in written form uh, yesterday. Uh, please feel free to get in touch if we can provide any more help. Thank you very much. Thank you.